Welcome to episode 61 of Between the Times, a podcast of Christ Church Presbyterian in Charleston, South Carolina. We are here at uh, 104 Broad Street in our church offices. I'm here with my uh, good friends, uh, Reverend Ross Hodges and Dr. Gabriel Williams. And we are here uh, this morning uh, to talk about a very important subject, but a subject that uh, rubs some folks the wrong way, uh, particularly if they I haven't thought through it. I know at one time it, it was something that I had to, uh, to really work through as a, uh, as a believer, and that is the doctrine of uh, God's election and predestination. Uh, this doctrine, some think, if we need to talk about it at all, should only be uh, spoken of in the academy mm-hmm. uh, among theologians and uh, perhaps uh, philosophers. Uh, discussing the doctrine of predestination, perhaps along the question of how many uh, angels can uh, possibly dance on the head of a pin. Um, but we uh, believe that, uh, you know, because it is clearly set forth in Scripture, that we need to deal with it. We at least need to ask, what does this word mean? In Ephesians chapter 1, and, and we spoke about this in our, our men's Bible study this morning, uh, it says, In Ephesians 1, verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him, that is, in Christ, before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight. And then going down to verse 11, in him, that is in Christ, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. Mm-hmm. As we talk about this uh, important doctrine, uh, gentlemen, what, what's it, what is it important for us to understand about free will? Well, the first basic thing to say about free will is that it's something that has to be constrained and defined within what Scripture tells us about humanity now. We can speak about what free will meant to Adam before the fall. And even then, it's not unconstrained. Adam is still under God's world. But you could say of Adam before the fall, he had the ability to choose the good, which is to serve, obey God, keeping the covenant of works, or to violate his law to transgress the covenant. That is what most people think of in terms of free will. The difference is that we are now post-fall. And that means there is what some have called the bondage of the will at this point. The will is no longer in the same condition that it was before the fall. And that means when we talk about the free will of man, it's the freedom that man has, so to speak. But man's will is still connected to his nature. Yeah. If man's nature has changed before the fall to after the fall... That means what he chooses to do is going to be constrained and governed by his new nature. And the Apostle Paul tells the Ephesian Christians who they were before they became Christians. That's correct. Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 1 says, 
uh, it says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work, currently at work, in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. That's not a rosy picture of humanity. Mm -hmm. uh, here we see humanity as fallen in Adam, mm -hmm. as Gabe, you just explained to us, as dead in transgressions and mm -hmm. sins, what the old reformers called depraved, mm -hmm. uh, and, and in bondage to the world, the flesh, and the devil. Uh, again, this is not a picture of someone walking with some kind of neutral spiritual condition. Right. Uh, and, and, and yes, he or she does have the ability to choose, but in that condition, they're always choosing to rebel against God and right. to be an enemy of God and never just to love and serve and obey him. Yeah, that's the misnomer about free will that I think many people have, or even when you're speaking strictly philosophically, the idea is that you're, a free will means that you can choose whatever you want. But we, we think of uh, illustrations where you, you have a, a person who's in prison and they have a free will, but it's a constrained will. Mm -hmm. And you can choose in your prison cell to stand up or to sit down to to sing or to be quiet, to bang on the door. or be, you, you can choose those things, but you cannot choose to be free. You cannot choose to leave your cell. And that's, as you brothers have been saying, that's the condition now that we are in as it relates to choosing good and choosing righteousness because of our nature and our bondage to sin and our, our dead uh, spiritual selves. We can't choose something contrary to our nature. We could not, cannot would not choose God apart from something external to us. Yes, and this is what the old theologians uh, called um, the doctrine of total depravity. Mm -hmm. Because when we think about the makeup of our human nature, uh, that uh, we have a mind, we have a will, we have affections, mm -hmm. and the Bible speaks about all of these things, not only in the passage we just read, but also in other places, we, we read about our darkened minds and understanding. Mm -hmm. we, we learn about our hardened hearts right. uh, and wills, we, we rebellious wills. We, we learn about our corrupted affections. And, mm -hmm. and <clears throat> sin is so, uh, we, are, are, we are so like a cancer, so inundated with sin that we can't even understand the depths of it. Mm -hmm. uh, and... Part of this problem we have as well, it seems, is that we actually often want God to be like us mm -hmm. in the way we understand holiness and sin rather than the way God is. That's right. Mm -hmm. And I would say probably along with that, there's the common expression that we try to make God into our image yes, rather than saying that we are in the image of God. And so what that means is that when we come to a passage in which God clearly states his divine freedom, his freedom to choose, his freedom to create, and his freedom to give new life, there is a natural sinful hostility that comes there because the immediate question becomes, if I can't choose my salvation, then that means I can't be judged, right? And hence the questions of, 
the fairness, the goodness of God come into view when you talk about matters of predestination and election. One reason I think that comes up as well is that the idea that people get in their heads is this kind of cold, uh, you know, metallic, aloof choosing of people that's that's disconnected from God's uh, love, uh, Mm -hmm. that's disconnected from His Son, the Mm -hmm. Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, And that's just not the way the Bible uh, communicates uh, the doctrine of election to us. That's correct. It's it's always in Christ, as as we just read from Ephesians, uh, chapter one. It says, even as He chose us, that is, even as God chose us in Him or in Christ before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love, He predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ. And then verse 7, in him we have redemption, that is in Christ. And then in verse 11, in him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. So over and over again, we have this emphasis on being chosen before the foundation of the world in Christ. Christ was chosen by the Father to be in the covenant of redemption to be the savior. Mm -hmm. And as he chose Christ in him, he chose us. And so it really reinforces this Christ as our elder brother, Christ as the firstborn. Mm -hmm. um, uh, And, and this kind of emphasis that we have in scripture. You know, I I think something else to keep in mind alongside of this is the fact that, that God is choosing people in love in Christ because apart from that choice, they would perish. And, Mm -hmm. They would, they would be rightfully judged, rightfully condemned, uh, rightfully punished. And oftentimes the objections to a, the doctrine of election and predestination are coming from a viewpoint where it's not fair. It's not fair that, that some are chosen for life and others are chosen for punishment. Uh, but what that's missing is that what justice is, raw justice, raw fairness, is that human beings receive the due penalty for their sin, all of us. Mm -hmm. And so when we object to predestination and election, we're objecting to God being merciful and being gracious and putting his love upon some that he chooses. And it's, you know, Paul mentions there, he, he has predestined us for adoption, for adoption as sons into his kingdom. He, Paul speaks in Colossians 1 of, of God bringing us out of, uh, out of the, you know, the kingdom of uh, this darkness. world and darkness and into the kingdom of his son. Mm-hmm. And he, he has chosen us for that. One, because we could never choose it ourselves. Um, we, we don't have the abilities we spoke of earlier. Um, and, and we deserve to be in that darkness, and we deserve to be condemned, and he chooses us out of that. He adopts us out of it. And so when we object to this doctrine, we're objecting to God being loving. Mm-hmm. We're objecting to God taking uh, out of a mass of deserving uh, sinner, sinners deserving his wrath and deserving justice of him not being wrathful and just to them in that way. Yes. And it's... Yeah, it's really a flipping on the head of the way that we should look at the reality of salvation when we, when we object in this way. Another important thing to mention is uh, the, the clear uh, difference between 
uh, believing in a kind of salvation where you partner with God for your salvation mm -hmm. and believing in the kind of salvation which the Bible teaches, which is that God saves you and that you don't save yourself yeah. and you don't partner with him to save yourself. And so when we see passages in the New Testament um, uh, communicating this doctrine of election and predestination, the emphasis is upon the love of God and the emphasis is upon our human weakness, our inability uh, to live for God, to choose God on our own. Uh, it must be an act of grace. It must be a work of God's free grace. But it also makes clear that we are not saved by our own, our own works. And here in 2 Timothy 1, verse 9, it says that God saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our own works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. So here you have a couple of points. Uh, one, that we are not saved by our own works, but clearly because of his own purpose and his grace, yes. his sovereign purpose and his, his amazing infinite grace. But then the second emphasis is the one we've already made, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. Yes. Mm -hmm. So again, here is the emphasis that we are chosen by God, yes, but we cannot divorce from that the idea that we are chosen by God in Christ, mm -hmm. in the beloved. And it has been a part of his eternal counsels to save a bride for mm -hmm. his son. Mm -hmm. And by God's grace, the church is the bride of the eternal son who is saved to the praise of his glorious grace. Amen. Now that is a high view of the church. The church Amen. is not just a place to drop off your kids to enjoy the programs and yeah. keep them busy. Yeah. The church is, is that which Christ died for, mm -hmm. that which God saves to the praise of his glorious grace. And there is a true God-centered uh, view of, of the Christian faith. And we, we, we've sung this song many times, the church is one foundation. Mm -hmm. And there's the line, a song, from heaven he came and sought her. Mm -hmm. That's the, the picture yes. that's being brought here. And it, it, it strikes the senses to me to think of what the word salvation means. And oftentimes, if the word you know, in the New Testament may be someone unclear, think about the Old Testament picture of salvation. It's the Jewish nation. When you go back to the book of Exodus, at no point in that narrative do you get the idea that the Israelites were people who were partnering with God to be saved. That's not the picture. I mean, think about the picture. They're on the actual edge of destruction from the Egyptian army rushing at them. They are hopeless without anything to save them. But God does something. He does something miraculous. And that's the picture of redemption. That's what's rejoiced in an Exodus. That's what's proclaimed all throughout the Psalms in which remember the faithfulness of God. It's repeated in Deuteronomy, remember God's faithfulness to the Jewish people mm -hmm. and how he delivered them from such a hostile enemy. That is the picture of salvation. So salvation should never be seen as a, a as you mentioned, a partnership where you both agree to a mutual conclusion. The reality is that you are saved because you are in destruction. You are on the verge, so to speak, of perishing in your sins, mm. but God has redeemed you, rescued you from where you should have been. And that's what election is, because let's be honest, historically, we know that the Jews were not the only slaves in Egypt, but God did choose the Jewish nation. 
the question of fairness can be brought up there. Why did God choose to save the Jews, but not all the other slaves that existed in the Egyptian mm -hmm. empire, and Egyptian kingdom? The reality is that's what election is. Mm -hmm. You have a lot of people who are slaves, mm -hmm. but God, by sure grace and mercy, is saving some mm -hmm. for his purpose. Why did he save Abraham out of the Ur of the Chaldeans? Yeah. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, one man he brought out and, yeah. and, and made his promises to him, to his family. Mm -hmm. Why not the other people? Well, mm -hmm. Abraham didn't deserve it. Well, he didn't. His family <laughs> didn't deserve it. And nobody deserves it. Mm -hmm. uh, so. That's that's the important the, the important part of the objection that gets missed is that it, it, it's not not fair in the way that we're saying it's not fair. It, it's not fair in the sense that no one deserves it, mm -hmm. and then and that therefore is grace and mercy on display. And it's really the the whole doctrine here. It's a doctrine that <laughs> it gets a bad rap in one sense. Um, Probably from overzealous uh, reformed people who should be, as we say, locked up in a cage for a while because they're beating people over the head with it. But it's actually, it's a beautiful and comforting doctrine yes. because when we grow in our faith, we grow in understanding of the word and of God's revelation of himself and of who we are, we begin to realize that our best works are abominably small they're they're as filthy rags as as the scriptures say and if we are relying in even the smallest part upon some work that we do a decision that we make a uh, a heart attitude that we have if we're relying on something of that nature even in the smallest way for our salvation then we're going to be plagued with a, a great deal of fear and uncertainty and lack of assurance if if we understand ourselves truly but what the doctrine of predestination and election clearly communicates from the scriptures is that it's all of god mm -hmm. and that it is of sheer and complete grace and therefore he has done it and we have no part in it and therefore we are safe mm -hmm. we are truly saved and that's something to take comfort in when you wake up in the morning and you go into your day to know that you are loved by God, you are kept by God, you are one of his beloved. Mm -hmm. Christ was sent from heaven to save you by mm -hmm. shedding his very own blood for your sins. Now that's something to take comfort in. Not, mm -hmm. am I going to be able to prove myself again to God today? Mm -hmm. Am I going to have to uh, be accepted into the beloved again today mm -hmm. by what I do um, and this is, as we mentioned earlier in the men's Bible study, this is, this is not a license to sin. Mm -hmm. quite, quite the opposite. It's actually a license to love, yes. mm -hmm. a license to walk in faith, um, a license to, to submit to God's commands because we love Him, not because obeying His commands can, can justify us before God, but we obey His commands because we are justified by grace through faith and we love Him and want to please Him. Um, in Romans chapter 9, of course, we have a section that's uh, very forthright on this topic. And in verse 9, Paul writes, For this is what the promise said about this time next year, I will return and Sarah shall have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children, one by, uh, uh, children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, 
but because of him who calls, she was told the older will serve the younger, as is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. What shall we say then, Paul writes? Is there injustice on God's part? That's what we were asking earlier, right? Is this unfair? Mm -hmm. By no means, Paul writes. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion. Let me read that again. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. Amen. And that, that is what election is meant to convey to us, that God is a God of love. He is a God of mercy. He does not pass over all of us and leave us in our sin and rebellion, which is exactly where we want to be, by the way, yes. apart from God's grace. That is what we want. We Amen. want to be separated from God. We yes. want to live in sin. We want to live in pride. Uh, that may look different for different people. For one person, it may be an upstanding life where they're trusting in their own morality and rejecting Christ. Mm -hmm. For another person, it may be living in, in some kind of terrible, profligate lifestyle. Mm -hmm. Whatever the case may be, uh, we need to recognize that, again, as fallen creatures, we do not have the ability to love and to know God. Mm -hmm. And so we enjoy and delight in our own sin and rebellion. Mm -hmm. So we're not we're not these you know cute puppies in the shop window that you know deserve an owner, uh, as it were. Uh, we are we are not neutral. We are we are enemies of God, rebels, and it's only by His grace that He would come to us in His Son and 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 draw us to Himself. Um, this is the kind of language that Jesus uses in John six. Mm -hmm. I have come, Father, for those whom you have given me. Yes. Mm -hmm. Who are the ones whom the Father has given him? It's the elect. Mm -hmm. Those whom he has set his love and affection upon even before the foundation of the world. What about this word foreknowledge? Uh, some like to bring that up, and to, they think that uh, bringing the word foreknowledge up just erases everything we've just said in the past 20 minutes. <laughs> um, what's... Let's talk for a minute about what people think that word means and what it actually means. So the standard view of foreknowledge is that it's passive, which essentially means that God's, it's speaking of God's omniscience. God knows the activities, the desires, and hearts of people. And so when an appeal to foreknowledge comes, the usual statement is that God sees who would choose him at some point in the distant future, and based upon his knowledge of that event, he then applies the activity of election and predestination to it. The problem with that is when you look at foreknowledge in scripture, it's never passive. It's always an active sort of statement. That's why you read not of God foreknowledge. You read God foreknew certain people. Mm. It's an active verb in that case. And the reason it's meant to be active is because it's God's decision making that's important. So foreknowing isn't just a passive knowledge of someone's activities or their behavior or who, what their heart is. It's God's purposeful action saying, that is my child. That's the one to whom I know and will know and put my love and affection to. So those who believe in predestination must not care about evangelism. Right. <laughs> well, Ross, we, hope, Ross, we, hope, we hope that's not true. <laughs> Ross, how would you respond to that? Uh, that was one of the questions I had. 
when I first began grappling with this 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 doctrine, uh, which which is a doctrine, by the way, that Paul the apostle wrote to the church at Ephesus, mm-hmm. not to theologians and philosophers, but to mm-hmm. ordinary Christians. This is an important doctrine for ordinary Christians. So so when you present this doctrine, which we need to do in the church, it's important for the church. How do you respond to this question? Well, what does that mean for evangelism? If God is sovereign, and He sent His, his Son to die for for these uh, elect individuals, why does evangelism even matter anymore? Yeah, that it's a it's a good question, and um, not to be too snarky in starting off this answer. But if God is sovereign, you know, why do we care about earning money and and paying our bills and you know putting food on the table and those sorts of things? Um, it's because we we inherently believe for most things in in what the what theologians call secondary causation, so that God is sovereign, but He uses means to accomplish things, and uh, we believe that God feeds us, and we believe that God clothes us, and, and we believe that God takes care of us in in every respect, and that He is sovereign over every detail of that. But He uses means to do so, and the means of feeding and clothing and taking care of us typically come through. Uh, working a job and getting a paycheck and paying your bills and, and that sort of thing. Well, as God is sovereign in those things, so he's sovereign in salvation, but he also uses means in salvation. Mm-hmm. And the primary means that he uses is his word, and his word preached, uh, Romans 10. Uh, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. And so God has ordained that uh, people who are predestined, who are elected to salvation, will come to faith through the preaching of the word. Mm-hmm. Um, and the evangelism, the official evangelism of the church in that capacity. But we also believe that um, that word can come through the mouths of Christians and uh, through the relationships of Christians with unbelievers, uh, speaking to them the things of the Lord, living consistent lives uh, before them, loving them. Um, all, All of those things are part of the way that God uses to draw people to himself. Creation. As a, as a part of yes. a testimony of God's uh, sovereign power and attributes? Yeah, absolutely. So the, the short answer is that evangelism is a, a, a God-ordained secondary causation uh, for, for bringing people unto himself. I love the language of the Confession, Westminster Confession, uh, chapter 3, um, stating... As God hath appointed the elect unto glory, so hath he, by the eternal and most free purpose of his will, foreordained all the means thereunto. That's mm-hmm. basically what you just said, Ross. Yeah. Um, very helpful. Um, this, this doctrine is often misunderstood. Uh, it's mischaracterized. I've, I've heard uh, sermons in the past where a minister would preach from Ephesians 1 and just leapfrog like minds, you know, mm-hmm. over uh, these words that are so full of, of meaning in regard to our understanding of who God is. Because what is it saying if we want to dispute the doctrine of God's sovereignty in salvation? What are some of the, the implications of that for our view of God and our view of man and our view of salvation? Well, it it's, uh, goes back to something about what we said about human nature. Mm. When we speak about God's sovereignty in a very defensive and hostile manner, we're just pouring out what's actually in our hearts, which means 
we do not want to submit to God's righteousness. Mm -hmm. And that's mm -hmm. a very harsh thing to say for a lot of people. But mm -hmm. consider how the gospel is presented. When, when Peter preaches his sermon in Acts 2, he's evangelizing the Jews that are there. When he preaches that sermon, he makes a statement that by the definite purpose and foreknowledge of God, you have put uh, the Son of God to death. Therefore, repent and believe mm -hmm. is the essence of that sermon. So Peter is proclaiming something very clear about God's predestination of the events that occurred leading yeah. up to the crucifixion and the crucifixion and the people standing there would hear this message. The reality is that when Peter makes that actual proclamation, he's depending upon God's sovereignty to actually have the message heard by the people there. And he's also saying that none of the events that did occur concerning the life uh, death, resurrection of Jesus makes any sense apart from God's predefinite purpose that was already established here. And so it speaks in one sense about, one, if God is not the one who is predestining uh, salvation, it speaks about, well, if someone is saying that in their heart, it says something to them about their view of God. They think God is perhaps not as uh, kind of compassion as you should be because they or as you are or as you are exactly <laughs> and it also says again that uh, salvation in the bible is somewhat random and arbitrary mm. it's not connected to god's yes. intentions yes and so something you know you've heard it said in numerous different contexts that salvation in the new testament doesn't just spring out of nowhere it comes from god's work for centuries and mm. centuries and so it wouldn't make sense to say that this salvation that you saw in the Old Testament, which was completely independent of the work of the Jews, apparently, is now focused and centered upon man's action in the New Testament. Yes. And so in a very basic sort of sense, to say that uh, God is not sovereign over salvation is to say that God had no purpose for what he did for centuries up until the work of Christ in history. Yeah. And and Jesus's work and death on the cross is just a very big I hope so. Yeah. I hope this has an effect. I hope this works. I hope somebody will choose me. Yeah. I hope that all as you, John you said earlier mm -hmm. this morning in Bible study and as one of the other brothers pointed out that the central uh, this is when Bible study this morning the central message of the Bible essentially is God is God and you are not God. So the seven words of summing <laughs> up the Bible and if we if we don't accept the scripture's clear teaching on the sovereignty of God and salvation and in all things, we are wanting to be God. Yes. We are wanting to be yes. sovereign in salvation. Yes. We are wanting yes. to take his place. And the Bible teaches from Genesis to Revelation that God is God, that he is sovereign over all things, uh, and that man is responsible in his sin. Mm -hmm. Yes. That God cannot be blamed for our sin. Though he is sovereign, though he ordains all things that come to pass, he is not, he is not culpable for our sin. Amen. And uh, we must be settled in that and recognize that. Um, and, and as you say, Ross, um, when Jesus was sent to the earth, he came to accomplish the purpose of his Father. And the purpose of his Father was to, to save uh, those whom he chose before the foundation of the world. And this is why we do ministry and evangelism with confidence. 
right? Yes. Uh, because without understanding that, without having that confidence, <coughs> when we go to plant a church or we go to do missions or we share the gospel, um, it's all going to be up to us. You know, how well we can persuade them, uh, how receptive they might be on that particular day. And souls are constantly hanging the balance and it's up to you. I remember when I didn't hold this, this uh, doctrine, I would walk out of restaurants with a weight of guilt upon me because I had not shared the gospel with several people that I had been in, even in small discussions with. Maybe the person that I was paying at the register or someone I had uh, met on the way in. Uh, if I didn't share the gospel with them, I thought, if that person goes to hell, it is on me. Mm. Didn't share with them. Mm. So embracing this doctrine, it not only emboldens me for evangelism, but it also gives me the understanding that it's not all up to me mm -hmm. to save the world. Um, and, and those whom God has chosen will eventually uh, be confronted uh, with the gospel and God's perfect timing. We can take comfort in that. Yeah. Jesus says um, in John 6, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Amen. Who will be raised up on the last day? Those for whom the Christ Son died. gave his very life. Yes. Mm -hmm. Why did Christ give his, give his life? Because the Father sent him to accomplish his will, to save those whom he had elected and given to Christ. Again, there it is, in Christ, yes. given to Christ, even before the foundation of the world. Here is your bride, son. Your bride is stained with sin. Your bride is in bondage to the world, the flesh, and the devil. Mm. Go rescue your bride, yes. is the call of the Father. Jesus doesn't just make salvation possible. He accomplishes it. Amen. He, he doesn't just make it possible for you to be saved. He saves you. Mm -hmm. Amen. And yeah. what an encouragement this is to our souls. Mm -hmm. uh, election is not a cold, uh, metallic, uh, sort of obtuse kind of doctrine. Mm -hmm. um, it's full of God's love, mm -hmm. full of mercy, full of Christ. Mm -hmm. And so we, we rejoice in it. Amen. Well, thank you for joining us on this episode of Between the Times. Uh, we hope uh, to be with you soon again. Mm -hmm.